let's get to it. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 12 uh, is our scripture reading. Um, as, as we begin a short series, uh, World Upside Down, based on sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning uh, with verse 1. I invite you to follow along as I read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, there is lots of talk in our time about the pace of change, the way that our accustomed order of things is, is in a state of, of turmoil, of, of, of being overturned. Whether we look at, at digital life and the way that we are surrounded by information and distractions and, and images uh, and, and that kind of thing, whether we think about political order and the way that the old categories have been mixed and, and sliced and diced and turned upside down, whether we look at international relations and the way that old alliances have been challenged and, and new groupings have been formed and new conflicts have arisen, um, it is not uncommon to hear people say, the world has been turned upside down. Uh, now, I know that, that most of you think that, that a pastor's life consists of studying the Bible and, and praying and fasting, but the truth is I occasionally watch television. And I've been following a series, uh, a streaming series. I, I, I love stuff that's based in the 1960s because I was a child then, and it just kind of takes me back, and, and it's nostalgic, and at the same time you could say no one would ever have said that. Uh, that kind of thing. So, so you, you, have, you have kind of warm feelings and a feeling of superiority at the same time, which is nice. But I just, I just wrapped up a, uh, a, a series that was based in, in the 60s. And uh, in one of the last episodes, one of the characters is saying, well, things are just changing so quickly. You know, and it was 1961 in that moment. And a lot of us are thinking, oh, back when there were only three television stations. And you were lucky if you could get all three of them at the same time, right? Uh, you know, a, a de almost a decade before uh, humans went to the moon with less computing power than all of us carry around in our pockets today. Uh, you know, just, just remarkable how much change there is. Well, as, as, it, as people have said, and I understand it sounds better in French, but I'm not going to attempt that. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And a part of the way that they stay the same is that the perception of, ch of change is a constant. It's a remarkable thing in Acts chapter 17 uh, when Paul is, is visiting the city of Thessalonica for the first time. He is preaching the gospel there. 
the response um, is, is described in verses 6 and 7, where uh, some of the, the opponents of Christianity have taken some of these new Christians before the city authorities, and they're shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Uh, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. World turned upside down. Well, this is effectively what the gospel does. Paul's opponents in Thessalonica were more right than they realized. Yes, the proclamation that Jesus is king challenges the world as it exists. It challenged that world. It challenged the world of the 1960s. It challenged the pre-pandemic world of the, of the 2010s. And it challenges our world as well. Jesus' proclamation of the coming of God's kingdom is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Critical verse is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Just a stone's throw from this passage where Jesus has returned from the wilderness uh, after being tempted by Satan. Um, this is after his baptism by John the Baptist. And Matthew tells us that Jesus begins preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by saying the kingdom of heaven, he's not simply saying we're inviting people to heaven. He's saying the one who is enthroned in heaven, God Almighty, is going to take his world back, is going to become the world's true king as he's promised. Wait a minute, isn't God always king of the world? Well, look around. Look around and we see, no, no, there is a need for God to establish his reign. And so Jesus is proclaiming that. Now, what's the, the natural kind of question that we would, we would have uh, at that point? Well, on the one hand, we would realize that the world's proper order, or I should say the world's established order as we see it, not the proper order. The world's established order is an, an order of rebellion against God as king. And God is now changing that, and so that is indeed going to turn the world upside down. Well, then the question that I would have is, well, how does it turn me upside down? How does it flip me over under those circumstances? And we might think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as the mandate of God's kingdom, as the way that God's rule transforms the way that we look at ourselves and the world around us and our needs and our hopes and our aspirations, our goals, our dreams, our relationships. They're all transformed by God reestablishing his rule over the world. To say this briefly, and that would be a relief, God's reign flips our values. God's reign flips our values. So let's, let's consider these familiar words of blessing, what we, we call the Beatitudes. And by the way, they're not Beatitudes, okay? Beatitude is an old world meaning blessed, and blessed is a word that we only use in religious discourse or when we stub our toes, as in, oh, I stubbed my blessed toe. Uh, maybe you substitute other words for that. That's your business. Uh, but uh, an unfamiliar word, but one that in, in part will be unpacking. So how does this statement of blessedness begin to transform our values? Well, it begins to transform 
who we aspire to be. Who we aspire to be, what it is that, that we want to be. I'm one, you know, I'm, I'm older than um, uh, three quarters of you, seven eighths of you, um, uh, less mature than, than easily four fifths of you, but, but older. And, um, you know, I still ask myself, what do I want to be when I grow up? And then I think, why should I grow up? And, and I just go on. I just kind of go on. But, but, you know, who do we aspire to be? Well, Jesus tells us that in God's kingdom, we should aspire to be weak. Now, that's an amazing thing. But at one level, it's, it's, it's a bit of a relief. Each of the terms that Jesus uses in verses 3 to 5 in Matthew chapter 5, each of the terms that are found here are terms that align with the general category of weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, you know, the interesting thing about this is we immediately recognize, oh, that, that sounds kind of bad. That sounds weak. That sounds helpless. That's, your, your instinct there is right. Your intuition is, is correct. But immediately then, people start trying to explain these things away. For example, we look at poor in spirit, and we kind of skip over poor, and we go to spirit. And we understand it has to do, oh, with, with something inner, with an attitude. And then we need to realize, but yeah, but that attitude is an attitude that aligns with being poor. And if we need that underline for us, we should, we should skip over to Luke 6, where when, when Luke gives his report of Jesus' sayings, he simply says, blessed are you poor. And as we do that, we begin to realize, you know, I've got to understand myself in God's kingdom as a person who is economically vulnerable, who is deeply in need of support from someone else who doesn't have what it takes to make it in the world. You know, Jesus' teaching about economics is, is always a controversial point, but it, it gets summarized down, I think, to this idea that having wealth is something that distracts us and deceives us about our ultimate reliance on God the Father, on our ultimate need for what God supplies. This is why Jesus, when he encounters a, a rich man, the rich man says, oh, what good thing must I do to, to inherit uh, eternal life? Uh, and, and Jesus says, oh, you know, ultimately he says, um, sell everything you have, follow me, okay, and you will have treasures in heaven. What does he mean by that? Not simply you'll have a reward when you go to heaven. No, 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 no. Your reward is in the reign of God, the reign of God now that supplies your needs even in this moment. Now, what that means is, irrespective of our economic condition, we've got to see ourselves as that vulnerable. A few years ago, um, uh, uh, there was um, a, a thing kind of going around in, in, in preaching circles. Um, people who preach are the, the most sanctified thieves in the world. Okay. They're always stealing ideas from one another. Okay. Now, this is legal theft okay, for the most part. There are 
issues of copyright, et, et, et cetera. But uh, you know, if, uh, the truth is, if you are completely innovative, you're probably starting a heresy, and that's just a bad move. Um, so, so it's, you know, repeating other folk, just, just it kind of happens. Um, and, and one of these things that was going around was uh, this idea, meekness doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control, like a mighty stallion with a, with a bridle and a bit so that it obeys what, what its writer tells it to do. That's a vivid image. I love it. It'll preach. The problem is it just doesn't have anything to do with this text. Okay? The word meek that Jesus uses was commonly used in his time for the position of people like slaves who had no power and no right or authority to protect themselves uh, or, or to assert any rights or privileges. Okay? It, meek does mean weak. This, this, this is the, the amazing news in, in all of this. So, so there's a way in which all of these terms, and we could, we could talk about the others. We could talk about mourning. We could talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But, the, but they're all about need. You know, God's reign exposes our inability to change what's really wrong with our own condition and the condition of the world. You know, I recognize that the world is out of whack, and I long for something better. And I have only, at most, limited provisional ability to make an impact about that at all on my own. Or as we learned to sing this when we were young, little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. You're going to think I spend all of my time watching television by the time this message is over. Uh, you know, the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is um, a, a good American story. Um, did, did any of you see Founder before it left Netflix, the story of Ray Kroc, the, the founder of McDonald's? Okay. It's, it, it, it would be worth tracking it down if, you, if you're able to. I'm, I've been a McDonald's fan since I was six um, and had it for the first time um, in, in Atlanta when my dad was there on business and we were, we were with him and I thought, this is just the most amazing thing. Well, uh, the, the story of, of, of Ray Kroc in Founder is a, is a suitably mixed story because you see his, his determination to see this business through, but you also recognize that he was a mix of ambition and hard work and deceit and blind luck. So a guy who, at the end of his life, could you know, deliver stirring uh, motivational messages about how you know, if, you, if you have a dream, that you should, you should grasp it and you should go for it, that kind of self-empowerment thing. The, the true story of the man's life, I think, tells us something else. Our sense of self-reliance is essential to the lie that we believe and propagate about ourselves. Most of our lives are spent in complete dependence on others. And some parts of our lives accentuate that. And that's, the, that's the real reality. But God says, I come to bless those who are weak as I establish my kingdom. God's reign is for those who have needs and know it. The rich man was told, you know, in, in the wake of, of his exchange with Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, well, if the rich can't do it, then who can? And Jesus says, with people, this is impossible. But with God, 
All things are possible. God does what we can't. And that is world upside downing good news. Jesus ironically calls us to embrace our weakness, not to compensate for it, not to cover it. What else does, does this passage uh, call us to aspire to be? Well, it calls us to be, and here's, here's a good religious word, godly. But it's the best word that I can come up with to summarize verses 7 to 9. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. These are all characteristics of God, of the God who reigns. He comes in his mercy. He comes in his purity. He comes with his peace. And he blesses us with those. And so as subjects of God's kingdom, and notice subject is not a word in in, in this meaning that we use very often in the United States. We're citizens. But in a kingdom, you're a subject. Subjects of God's kingdom are going to be like the king. If God reigns and brings his mercy and his purity and his peace, then that's what his subjects take on. Note well here, the focus of God's reign in this passage is on God's graciousness. It's on the way that he calls the unworthy to belong to him, to receive what more than arguably, less than arguably, however we want to say that, they don't deserve. You know, I don't, I don't deserve any of this blessing that God is giving, but he gives it. And so he calls me to be a similar kind of a vessel. This is why later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't judge other people. He's not saying you don't have any sense of right and wrong. You're unable to recognize the difference between what is true submission to God as king and what isn't. He says, you're not the judge. You're a vessel of God's mercy. God alone remains the judge in God's kingdom. And there is a very real judgment because God reigns for those who don't receive the mercy that he gives. And let's notice as well the emphasis here that Jesus makes is, is transformed by that phrase, in, uh, in heart. The purity is inward. You know, if, if we lived in Jesus' time, we would be thinking about the way that the, the Pharisaic rabbis taught a very rigorous kind of religious observance that was also very tangible. Well, if we live in our own time, we know how religiosity the outward observance of of religious duty uh, and even of ethics can be a subject or, or a substitute for genuine subjection to God. Jesus will emphasize in the Sermon on the Mount, true purity in God's kingdom exists where only God can see it. Man judges by the outward appearance. God judges by the heart. So it's not just murder that's wrong, but hatred. It's not just adultery that's wrong, but lust. If you give alms or, or pray or fast, Jesus will say in chapter 6, and those are three duties that all of his audience would have embraced and understood. He said, if you do those things, don't do them to be seen by people because people, they're not your king. Do them so that your king and your king alone see them. God knows our hearts. Now, if he knows my heart, he knows all that's in it. Yet he embraces me in his mercy. 
But in his mercy, I am also called to the inward purity that truly reflect, reflects his reign. Now, if that's not enough good news for you, my goodness, I've got a lot of sermon here. Okay. Uh, if that's not enough, we're, uh, Bob, we're maybe only going to get through point one. All right, if you're cool with that. Okay, He'll, he can just kind of zip through the slides and we can see what else is there. Um, for 25 years or so, I taught a class on intro to the Gospels. And, uh, you know, I'd spend typically like three hours on this passage. So it's old habits are hard to unlearn, uh, <laughs> if, if, if you will. Uh, but you all didn't pay tuition. You only get 30 minutes, okay? <laughs> okay, uh, where are we here? Um, weak, uh, godly, persecuted. Persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, this should have, would have come as a surprise to Jesus' listeners. If God is going to reign, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that the pagans are not going to reign. That Caesar and his ilk and all of the various empires which had preceded them, all of the idolatrous, ungodly, um, cruel, uh, oppressive peoples who had, had, had power in the world, they are now displaced. Yet Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. And as we look at the way Jesus talks about that theme, we recognize that um, this is something, this is... This has been the story of God's people from the beginning. Now, Jesus says in this passage, they persecuted the prophets this way before you. And if we wonder, well, exactly what does that comprise? There's a, a moment later in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus will say, oh, the blood of all of the prophets. And you think, well, who counts as a prophet? And he says, from the blood of Abel. Well, that's early, Cain and Abel. Abel's a prophet? As far as Jesus is concerned, yes. Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 4. Wouldn't it be great if we could all be one nice, happy family? Well, once we were one family, and look at what happened, okay? And then he says until, and this is, this is like Bible trivia on steroids, uh, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. And you're thinking, is that the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament? Answer, no. This is an obscure figure who appears at the end of 2 Chronicles. Now let's go into some really mysterious Bible trivia. In the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the collection. It's a different order than we're accustomed to. So Jesus is essentially saying from the beginning to the book to the end, it's all persecution. And now he's telling his followers, and guess what? So it is for you. Because the reign of God comes into the world not in something which is contrary to what God's people have experienced previously, but right into the middle of it. Jesus comes into the world, the divine Son of God, as one of us who experiences everything that you and I experience, all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the temptation, all of the suffering, and that, of course, comes to its climax in the cross. Now, sometimes we, we read this passage as if Jesus is saying it's a special badge of discipleship if you are persecuted. He doesn't say that. Better disciples aren't persecuted in the way that lesser disciples aren't. These experiences are random. They are unpredictable. They do not categorize us. They do not rank us. Ranking is fundamentally not consistent with the nature of God's reign. But neither should they 
should they surprise us. We are not, as some have said, told, blessed are those who are rude and obtuse when they are persecuted. But blessed are you when you're persecuted for the name of Jesus. <clears throat> Briefly, let me, let me summarize some, some other things about this passage. How are we going to make it in the reign of God if it's like this? This is a question that comes up. Well, we recognize, first of all, God fills our deficits. In every one of these statements of blessing, we begin, first of all, with the idea we are blessed. Being blessed doesn't mean that we have somehow fulfilled the right formula, you know, that we have done the right things. Um, guilt, guilt on those of us um, in, in the preaching profession for sometimes in our desire to make things practical and accessible, reducing them to formulas that we can apply in a way that, that gives us a sort of control over the outcome. The idea here isn't, you know, push the weak button and you get a blessing. Push the godly button and you get a blessing. Push the persecuted button and you get a blessing. No, the message here is God has got you. Something that I, I didn't appreciate until relatively recently is that in the ancient world, a good king, and there weren't many of them, in the ancient world, a good king was understood not just as a just ruler, but as someone who provided for his people. Now, that's very un-American, isn't it? We're supposed to make it on our own, all right? But a good king provides for our people. And this is what Jesus is saying throughout this, throughout this passage. God is going to fill your deficits. God is going to establish your identity. Who are you in the world? Fundamentally, a child of God, a subject of the king. This is why you are, you are known as children of God. You will, you will see God, Jesus says, in that, in that middle section. God reorients our resources. We typically think of our, our earning power, our income, our net worth, our accomplishments, our professional qualifications, our family and friend connections. Those are our resources. But God, even in the absence of those, provides what we need. The king supplies what his people need, and he replaces success with blessedness. Blessed is not mean, meaning better, but it means having God's favor. Being in the gracious grasp of God who is merciful to the weak. And this truly turns us upside down, but in doing that, turns things right. Now, why does any of this make sense? Why should we believe any of it? I mean, it's, it sounds great. This is a famous passage, etc. We believe it. It makes sense because Jesus proclaims it authoritatively. It's a remarkable thing as we read this sermon. Not once does Jesus refer to an external authority. Not once does he give what we might think of as a reasoned argument for his position. He just states it. He doesn't say, this is what blessing is because. We can unpack the inner logic, but he simply states it. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he makes these remarkable statements. Uh, you know, not those who call me Lord, but those who do what I say. And so the one who hears my commandments and does them is like the one who builds a house on the rock. And when the, when the floods rise... The house remains firm. So it is for the one who listens to what I do or what I say and who does it. He bases everything on his own authority. Now, why should we believe his authority? 
Well, first of all, because he did this himself. As, as we read this description of blessedness, we see in it a portrait of Jesus. That even though he has almighty power, which he freely exercises for those who are in need, he never uses that for himself. And that becomes supremely epitomized as he is crucified. And his opponents say, hi, he saved others, let him save himself. If you're God's true king, come down from the cross. And he doesn't because he is God's true king, living out the kind of life that we are called to, to live as God's subjects but have failed to do. So we see that in Jesus, but supremely we see that we need to listen because God the Father raises him from the dead and ratifies everything that he has done and everything that he has to say. I find an impressive, intuitive appeal to the teaching of this passage. Even though it, it takes everything that I'm accustomed to think and a lot of the habits by which we have ordered our lives and challenge the, challenges them at a most fundamental level, I nevertheless find these, these, these teachings deeply intuitively appealing. But there's more to it here than just, you know, I like this, and I'm intrigued by it. And I'm challenged by people who live this out in my presence, who show me what this looks like. All of that is true. It's also spoken by the Christ, who God the Father raises from the dead, and who, by faith we understand, reigns with him in heaven and invites us to be subjects of his kingdom. So how do you know when you've done this? How do you know when you are poor in spirit? How do you know when you are pure in heart? Here's the deal. You never arrive. You never arrive. As we contemplate this, this litany of, of blessing, we, we reckon with our failure. But do you realize where that takes you? And, and it's as, as if by design, it takes you back to the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, are those who mourn. Blessed are, are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you feel like you can't do this, Christ is pronouncing you blessed. Christ is pronouncing you blessed. It's impossible, apart from the Lord Jesus himself, to, to, to give an ideal example of what we describe here. But sometimes I think they jump out to us best when we see them in an unfamiliar context. Several years ago, I was visiting um, a mission in India that uh, our church in Cincinnati had, had supported for, for a number of decades. And as a part of what I was doing when I was there, <clears throat> uh, one, one evening we drove out away from the market town where this, this, the mission was based uh, to a, a village that was far enough away that the Hindu nationalists wouldn't care what happened there. And so, you know, a, a white American visiting would, would not cause a problem. And, and we, had a, we had a weeknight prayer meeting. There were about 35 people gathered in a, a, a thatch hut with a, with a dried cow manure floor. 
just packed into the place. In India, you can't worship without a drum. But in a pinch, a thick Bible will work as a drum if you're an enthusiastic 11-year-old boy. Okay, so, so this is kind of the nature of the thing. And I was the visitor, and I was there to speak, and I had a translator, and they were disappointed I only spoke for 40 minutes. Keep that in mind. <laughs> as, as we were leaving the village, and I, I, we'd gone around. I was in, invited to pray for people. Um, remarkable how many people wanted me to pray for their cows because their cows are their livelihood. As, as we were leaving, um, the, the, there were fires being lit and, and food being cooked. And these are people who had been working in the fields all day. Um, and, and we saw a man kind of lean back a, a, a simple chair against the, the outer wall of, of, his, of his family home uh, in relaxation and conversation with some other men. And, and my host, an, an Indian national, but one who had grown up in, in the city, who, who came from the Indian middle class, said, you know, these people know a kind of contentment that you and I will never find. The next Sunday, we were in a service like this, and uh, we were serving the Lord's Supper. And I was invited to, to participate in that. And, and this, this church had a, 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 an amazing routine. Uh, they're seated, men on one side, women on the other, youngest to oldest. Everybody knew this was the way it was done. And, and, and you, you began with the oldest people who were seated in the back, and they came forward to receive the Lord's Supper. And they had bread and, and cups very much as, as we would have. And so at the beginning, there were these, these women, older women of indeterminate age, most of them who had spent their lives working in the fields, their skin burned dark, their, their hands uh, deeply calloused from their labor. And all of them having been brought up, in what can only be described as idolatry, but had heard the gospel and were now followers of Jesus. I will never forget the experience of placing the elements of communion in the hands of one of those women and feeling the calluses as, as she took it and seeing the expression of joy on her face that she was receiving the emblems of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, that she was a subject of the kingdom of God, that in her weakness and need, someone who is forgotten by everyone in, in her larger nation, she had an identity and a calling that had turned everything upside down. 